Saturday, December 5th, WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff comes to Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. For more information, please visit collectorsworldva.com and pricing starts at only $25. That's WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff, Saturday, December 5th, 2015 from 11.30 to 12.30 at Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. Visit collectorsworldva.com for more information because it's going to be absolutely wonderful. Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Trip of Wrestling brought to you today and powered by Meowbox. Meowbox is a monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of Meowbox and courtesy of Meowbox.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime. John Paz and John, today on the show we have a founding member of one of the most revolutionary factions of the last decade, and that is Michael Tarver of the Nexus. And now when you say the Nexus, I know there's going to be a lot of cynics out there and a lot of skeptics, and I know the Nexus had a lot of promise. It ended up being a little bit of a disappointment, but let me tell you something. I want you all to strap in and get ready to become aware of how much Michael Tarver was able to lay claim to being the first to do so much when it came to the Nexus and when it came to so much in developmental and the fact that the Nexus didn't last as long as it should have, especially with Michael Tarver's involvement, is a crying shame. And we're going to hear all about that, but primetime, I want to hear from you first about Michael Tarver. And were you surprised with how much he really did innovate when it came to the look of himself and also uh, of some of the other things that are going around in the wrestling business today? Yes, Chatty Boy, back with another great episode here at the Two Man Power Trip Wrestling. This time, one of the original members of the Nexus, Michael Tarver. 
a.k.a. Tyrone Evans. It was great talking to him. And it's so funny, like, some of the things that you learn when talking to these wrestlers that you had no idea, you know, was true. The first thing was the uh, Mike Tyson, you know, his dad was a training, um, excuse me, sparring partner, not training partner, more of a sparring partner in, in boxing terms for Mike Tyson. Lennox Lewis, Michael Moore, all these awesome guys. The Mike Tyson thing is just unbelievable because you know that those sparring sessions, you know, uh, ended uh, pretty stiffly, if you know what I mean. I mean, gotta be, you know, he's got to be the hardest hitter or one of the hardest punchers of all time. So just unbelievable that Michael Tarver has, you know, his dad, you know, was able to be a sparring partner for that, and that's just awesome. And obviously, Michael Tarver's background in boxing, which is uh, quite extensive, and he had a great amateur career. He was undefeated, so that's great. But it's it's funny, on, on the other aspect of things, some of these guys, you know, they claim to be the first to do this or the first to do that, but you think about it, and he can lay claim and not just be a claim, it's actually true. Think back, who was the first one to have that half mask? Who was the first one to have that knockout punch, the Superman punch? It was all Michael Tarver. I mean, he, he kind of was the originator or the innovator of stuff like that, and now it's just happened place. You know, it, everybody... Um, uh, uh, excuse me, commonplace. Everybody happens to have, you know, the half mask or, you know, Roman Reigns is doing the knockout punch and this guy's doing the knockout punch and uh, he's doing the Superman punch and obviously Big Show's doing the knockout punch. So it's interesting that when people say that and then you really look into it and you really look it up and really look at it further, he was one of the first to do it and he can lay claims of being the first. So he's a bit of an innovator and, you know, we didn't know that going in, so it was great finding that out, and that's one of the best things about doing these interviews. You find out things you didn't necessarily think you were going to find out, which is really, really cool stuff. Yeah, you totally find out things that you didn't expect, and it was really cool to find out from Michael Tarver just the amount of stuff that he really did innovate and that he did bring to the surface that really do translate still today in terms of guys using moves or looks or whatever. But we got to turn our attention to the Nexus, and I'm sorry to be so negative about talking about the Nexus because I was a huge fan of the Nexus when it first started. And Michael Tarver, of course, being a part of that group and and part of NXT season one that led to that group coming together. But, you know, Tarver was a little, uh, he was discarded due to an injury and he watched in the sidelines as the, uh, the Nexus was destroyed. But when you talk about the night of the Nexus debut, I can't say that, you know, if you look at our, our list of guys that we've had on like the hall of famers, like Larry Zabisco and Sergeant Slaughter and even Dusty Rhodes, the story about the night of the Nexus debuting could be one of the best told stories and recreated stories by Michael Tarver. And it just I think it'll resonate well with the audience just because of the fact that it's so fresh in everybody's mind that the Nexus had such potential. And, John, I want to know what you think about it, because um, it was pretty much the best uh, the best description I think anybody's ever given about a full story. And I went back and I watched that debut and I watched everything that he said word for word and minute by minute and tried to sync it up to exactly what he was talking about. And he was dead on with everything that he said. The Nexus. We go into the Nexus in great detail. Michael, such a good talker. Such a great, you know, experience getting all this stuff out there. And being, you know, a fan of the wrestling business for over 30 years, as we both have been, you think about some big angles, but then, of course, you always think about those huge flops. And those always stick out sometimes a little bit more. Obviously, you think about the NWO, and that was just awesome. Just an amazing angle. Perfectly done. Everything else. Not many times can you, you know, you could look throughout the business and say, man, that faction, start. let's start it right, and let's 
keep it going. And it hasn't happened often, and WWE had a huge chance to do that with the Nexus. And did they miss? Oh, they swung and missed uh, like the New York Mets in the, Super, in the World Series. I mean, boy, did they swing and miss on that one. What a huge flop. Think about the Nexus, the way they started. So impactful. The crowd was in shock when they all had the attack. Then, obviously, Daniel Bryan gets fired, which was ridiculously stupid and a huge mistake and kind of uh, was part of the undoing of the Nexus for sure. But losing at SummerSlam was just... I just felt, you know, you could say that was early in, in the Nexus, if you will. You know, it was only about two months into the Nexus or, or maybe even a month or so in. But that was that was almost like the nail in the coffin. That killed it. That was just like... Okay, Cena beat him, and that's kind of the end of it. Obviously, Michael Tarver disagreed, Edge disagreed, Chris Jericho disagreed, so many people disagreed, but Vince uh, wanted to do it, and, you know, that's what happened. So, kind of, uh, you know, you can just kind of just mark it up there with a huge mistake and just say, boy, the Nexus was a huge flop, because they had the ability to make these guys who are all young guys, not necessarily unknown, but kind of unknown, you know, besides the NXT TV show, and, and make them into some something huge and make them into huge stars right away. But boy, did they swing and a miss, and it was a huge flop. And then after that, obviously, uh, Michael Tarver was discarded due to injury, and um, he kind of was just watching from the sidelines as, uh, you know, as the Nexus was being destroyed, and... Uh, Kind of a sad circumstance there, but, uh, you know, I guess that's the wrestling business for you, and especially WWE, uh, another huge flop. And the Nexus uh, didn't end up the way it should have. Yeah, the Nexus didn't end up the way it should have, and also I'm going to use the similarity to the New York Mets, and it also didn't end the way it should have for them. I think tonight uh, should still be watching a little New York Met baseball, if I do say so myself. But unfortunately, that is not going to happen. But before we get over to the Michael Tarver interview, and I also want to say we're going to take a listen to some of his music at the end of the interview. So I really want you to stay tuned for that. And he's going to plug his SoundCloud account where you can go and download all the songs. But I really want you to stay tuned and listen to the Michael Tarver song that we're going to add on the end of the interview. But, John, before we get over to it, I want to talk about NXT Season 1 and how innovative it was. And were you actually surprised... Uh, that he was able to peel the curtain back a little bit and tell us how that show was put together and um, was kind of surprised with what he had to say about how spontaneous some of the things were that they actually did get to do and shocked that they got away with it. One of the you know big parts of the show that we talk about with uh, Michael Tarver was the original NXT show. And, uh, and I had a very interesting question because all over the Internet you always read like how much of that show was scripted and how much did they know, how much were they told what to do. And, man, we learned so much about that show and and we you know some of it we were kind of shocked by you know by what actually occurred on that show and how much that they knew and how much was scripted and how much they were supposed to do so it was awesome to learn from uh michael tarver the way of him explaining the process of the show i mean it literally takes you behind the curtain you know of, of that show and it tells you how they put it the show together he's such a great talker and he puts it together so well it was just it was just amazing to to really you know get that behind the curtain look you know what i mean like the you know the the wizard of oz is being exposed you know you're opening the curtain to that show that was just great the story about matt striker it was great the story about how he basically just went into business for himself because that's kind of what they told him to do and basically he just you know was trying to just get over on his own because they had nothing for him just an amazing amazing story stick around for that one that that is one of my favorite parts of this episode it was some of it was a bit shocking to find out but it just awesome stuff on there and uh, you're definitely definitely going to enjoy that story about the original nxt show and the all the original participants of that show 
You will enjoy it indeed, and I'm going to say it again. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a special song just from Michael Tarver to his fans, just so you can take a listen to some of the great things that he's doing today. And John, speaking of other great things that we're going to be doing today, why don't we talk a little bit about Meowbox? And if you head on over to meowbox.com and throw the promo code POWERTRIP10 into the checkout box, you're going to get 10% off your first box subscription that's right, 10% off your first box subscription courtesy of Meowbox and Meowbox.com by using the code POWERTRIP10. Now, John, before you send it over to Michael Tarver and the great interview with him, as we learn all about the Nexus and all about NXT Season 1, why don't you tell him a little bit about the happenings of the two-man power trip of wrestling, hit him with a little two-man power trip of wrestling business, and tell him a little bit more about Meowbox. Oh yeah, Meowbox, baby. They're packing better than ever. That is Meowbox.com. And just remember, they do have a thing called One Box Can, where every Meowbox purchase, they will donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf. And again, that is One Box Can from Meowbox.com. Now, if you're going to go to Meowbox to get some edible items, you're going to want to know where they come from. They come from either the United States or Canada. Now, me, for instance, and my picky cat, Lucy, she does not like the edible items because of that special diet that she's on. So we actually trade out the edible items with toys and surprises, which Lucy absolutely loves. And it's great that Meowbox is able to do that for us. So again, that is Meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first subscription. Again, one more time for you, Meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. We are always putting up great clips of all past guests, so you definitely want to check us out on there. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, while you're on iTunes, check out the feed of past guests. Our lineup is out of this world. Literally, I mean, we got everybody. Think about this, Bruce Hart from Canada, obviously, Alex Wright from Germany, and we got upcoming you know, guys from all over the globe, but when you're checking out that feed, also look for the legend as well, like the late, great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, then you got Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Sergeant Slaughter, Tully Blanchard, Stan Hansen, and so, so, so many others, so please, again, that's... Check us out on iTunes. Also, please check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. Just type it into the Google machine there and look up Two Man Power Trip on the I-95 Sports Network. We're doing best ofs every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on that channel, on that station, on that network. So please check us out there. And if you'd like to book Kevin Fertig, a.k.a. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. Please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. And that again, that is to book Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, a.k.a. Mordecai. He's out of exile, and he's returning to the ring near you. And now, without any further ado, we send it to a great, great talker, with an unbelievable interview, he is the original Nexus member, one of the original eight. He is Michael Tarver, a.k.a. Tyrone Evans. We'll be sure. 
former WWE superstar and a founding member of one of the more, I guess you could say, innovative uh, but somewhat let go groups of the last 25 years. And he is a founding member of the Nexus. It is Tyrone Evans, a.k.a. Michael Tarver. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Oh, it's our pleasure. To trust me. And now, you know, it's funny. I, it's so it, it's so interesting to talk to you because I feel like in wrestling right now, there's a, a huge uh, interest in developmental. And we know where the original Nexus group came from and the original NXT TV show, and you were so... Uh, so much a part of that that I would love to get your take on how much the developmental has kind of evolved uh, since you were in it. And uh, when you were in it, did you see them evolving to where it is now? Because it seems like it's not like another stratosphere. Oh, yeah, it's definitely on a whole other level. No, I didn't, um, I didn't see it going to where it is now. I mean, there were definitely talks on expanding the building when it was in Tampa as far as when it was FCW. And there was a lot of talks of expanding it and everything, and but I didn't see, you know, I was I didn't see it turning into NXT or them kind of re bringing back the NXT brand. And I definitely, you know, no one could have predicted it would turn into what it is now. But um, I, I enjoyed my time in, in developmental, I enjoyed it very much, and I love NXT. It's actually, I don't really watch wrestling anymore. The only thing I can really watch is is New Japan and NXT. Every once in a while, I'll catch some <laughs> Ring of Honor, but if I watch wrestling, it's honestly New Japan or NXT. That's really it. Now, that's uh, the general consensus, I'd say, about 99% of uh, wrestling fans and people within the business. I mean, we've talked to a ton of people that say the same exact thing, that NXT is, you know, yeah. the product is so different. And whether or not it's, you know, WWE finally getting their finger on the pulse, but just trying not to tell you that they have their finger on the pulse, but, you know, you were so highly a part of that original NXT TV show, which was taking the spot of the ECW relaunch, which kind of, you know, I guess you could, some people could say it was a flop. You know, everybody's got it, uh, their detractors when it comes to that show. But when that NXT right. show was coming up and you guys were hot and developmental, um, what were your hopes going into that being, you know, that it was such a new concept, <laughs> uh, a competition rather than just a wrestling show? Yeah, one of the craziest things that a pro wrestler can have is hopes. <laughs> um, I, well, my hopes was that I would be able to uh, personally get to show, I guess, my ability, which everyone says, but um, my situation was a little different from what the popular, you know, what the, what the popular consensus probably thinks it is. Um, I was regarded very differently in SCW than I was basically presented on WWE TV, and I was – the promo guy was the guy writing promos for most of everybody in FCW who are now WWE superstars. I was, you know, I was basically, you know, Dusty Rhodes' project. And, you know, and with, with respect to everyone that I was there with, you know, and I was, at the, you know, one of the guys, one of the top guys at FCW was, was in the story with Justin Gabriel uh, or P.J. Black for the FCW title, and, and, you know, in the series with him right before, as we debuted. So, I mean, it was going from that to how things ended up for me at WWE was a little different, but, you know, I had, had some things going on that they loved at WWE. They loved my promos. They loved the way I speak. They loved the way that I was able to, you know, portray myself, and I never really got a chance to do it, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. I loved it. It was definitely, you know, I'm not, I'm not done with wrestling. I just don't wrestle as much as I used to, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, that FCW, um, <clears throat> right before the uh, NXT show really uh, took off, 
I think a lot of people uh, don't really know about it since it was still just a local show down in Florida. But if you can get your hands on yeah. it, I mean, some of the storylines, some of the match pairings were just out of this world. And then you sprinkle in some of the guys that were coming down and working with uh, the developmental talent. Yeah. It's just it's one of those shows that's going to go down as uh, almost like how world-class championship wrestling is, is that you got to go out and find it to see some of these gems. And, yeah, you were right in the title picture. And you talk about Dusty Rhodes being your guy, and he was somebody who was real champion for you. What about working with him? And he, obviously he's the promo man of the, uh, not of the century, uh, but how was it working yeah. with Dusty at that point? Because he was such a heavy influence on FCW. Oh, it was amazing. Um, he was my mentor. I, funny enough, I didn't actually call him that. He called himself that. And he, I, I don't forget one day we were in the office, and he, he introduced me to DDP. That was my first time ever meeting DDP. I was such, you know, such a huge mark for DDP. Always have been. And um, I was so excited to meet him. And basically, we were sitting in the office, the control room office in FCW, and he said, you know, he introduced me to him. He said, you know, here's a young guy up and comer, you know, and he, he's he's really he's got it. Like he, he's got it. You know, I'm his mentor. He's got it. And I sat there, I'm like blown away that, A, he called me his mentor, B, that I'm being introduced to Diamond Dallas Page. But Dusty really believed in me, and, you know, it was something that I'll always cherish. Because he, he was able to see what I was able to do on the mic, and he was able to find a way to help me, find a way to channel it. Um, Dusty was very – he cared a lot about the talent there. I mean, not everyone had the same relationships, but he cared a great deal about the talent there, and, and you know, he put a lot – he put us all – and to getting the best out of us. You know, it didn't always get optimized once it got to the main roster, but, that, you know, that wasn't his fault. But it was a pleasure. It was an honor working with us, I have to be honest with you. Yeah, it's just amazing, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, not only have him as your mentor, but almost like a pet project of his. I mean, that's, that's really, really cool. But what's the difference between, you know, the FCW pushing you and Dusty pushing you and then, you know, as you're trying to make your way into WWE, they kind of change things up. Like, what happens in between, you know, A and B? Translation, sometimes, it, you know, honestly, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if, you know, I'm in developmental, and I don't necessarily mean me, but it could be anybody. Someone is in developmental, and they're, you know, they're, they're on their way to the moon, past the stars, and someone at WWE doesn't quite see the same thing for whatever reason then they just won't get a chance to translate, even if they don't translate. And sometimes it just happens that way. Um, you'll see people who would never really accomplish much at all in, that, in developmental become WWE superstars, you know, and it just, you never really know. And that's one of the things I had to learn. Once you get there, you never really know how you're actually going to, how your career is going to pan. Of course, of course, unless you're related to somebody, then that's, then you know how your career is going to pan out. If you're, you know, if you're the son or daughter of someone, then you pretty much know how your career is going to go, which is fine. No problem at all. But other than that, you never really know. So, you know, it's just one of those learning experiences, and I got some really good good advice from Dr. Tom Pritchard, who's another one of my favorite people. Basically, you know, a couple of things he said to me, one of them was a Hall of Fame career or a great career is not just built on one shot or one contract. You think about all your favorite guys and think about how many contracts they've had or how many shots they've had or how many times they've been, you know, with different companies and had to start over. You know, if you want this bad enough, then you're going to have to endure the times where it goes low and you're going to have to start reinvent yourself, start over. And, you know, it's just the guys who continue to do that, who just who fight through the ups and downs, those are the guys who are going to have, the, you know, well-respected careers, you know, guys who overcome odds. You know, someone like myself, 
you know, not a lot of people can really see what I'm doing and see that you know see what I'm what I'm actually capable of because all they really know is what they saw at WWE, which they didn't really get to see much. But they don't know that I've been in Japan. They don't know, you know, they don't know the things that I've been doing. But, you know, I'm one of those situations where people don't really know or don't really expect a lot from me. So I don't, I don't really work for any of the major companies. And I'm one of those guys that would really have to fight to make sure I'm ready for the next opportunity so that way, you know, I, I can show what I can do. And there's a million other guys out there just like me. Definitely, and uh, very well said right there. And, you know, it's interesting with your SCW run, obviously, you know, you were able to showcase yourself more. And, you know, you had a couple different names down there. And, you know, obviously yeah. there was there was a couple, uh, I wouldn't say gimmick changes, but you definitely had, you know, a couple different name changes. Is that sent from, you know, above, or is that something that, uh, you know, like maybe Dusty comes up with while down there in SCW? No, that, that came down from above. Um, when I got there, I was doing – uh, a gimmick or a character that I was doing on the Indies in Cleveland. And a lot of people, for some reason, don't even know that I had already been working for almost five years before I even got signed. Don't realize that in February, it'll be 12 years I'll be, you know, I'll be wrestling. People don't actually realize that. Um, I had a couple of name changes, and uh, and they you know, they, they went with the whole boxing. I, I chose the boxing gimmick, and then they kind of put it on me and gave me the name Tyson Tarver. You know, obviously, you can guess that it's from two boxers' last names, but it correlates with the, you know, the story or the part of my character that my father was Mike Tyson's sparring partner, which he actually was. That's not a gimmick. He actually was, and I actually was a real boxer. So, I mean, that's just, I mean, it, it makes sense, I guess. It's just, it's, it's almost so fish, shooting fish in a barrel, it becomes far-fetched, like it's too predictable. But, I mean, a couple of times, a Tyson, Tyson kid debuted. He's a good friend of mine. He debuted. He didn't have his name set yet. And he literally was there trying to come up with a name with him before he walked out of the curtain. So he just, you know, came up with Tyson, Tyson Kidd, basically. Because his name is T.J. Wilson, but, you know, they just gave him Tyson Kidd. So I had to change my name in developmental. Then I came up with the um, 1.9 gimmick, the Superman punch gimmick. And I started doing that in FCW early on. Um, a lot of people don't know, before Big Show started knocking people out on SmackDown, I was doing a knockout punch in FCW. And to the best of my knowledge, no one else has ever really used a Superman punch in wrestling that I know of. Um, and then once I got to WWE, it was taken from me. I was, I was told I wasn't allowed to do it. And then and a lot of things happened. A lot of things went on backstage. A lot of things that have been well reported on between me and John Cena and so forth and so on. And now Roman Reigns uses my finisher now, which is cool. He's a friend of mine, but... Um, and now everybody, all every indie wrestler all over the world now uses my finisher, probably doesn't realize that where they got it from. But, again, it's cool. You know, it's all good. But I, I like to, you know, sometimes we do things we don't realize we actually make an impression. I'm not saying I'm some hero or legend, because I'm certainly not, but there's a lot of things that I've seen people do since I debuted. A lot of people wearing masks, like the, the half mask. I hadn't seen that in a very long time before I debuted with it. Now, everyone has some kind of mask of some sort. Everyone's doing a Superman punch. I mean, it's, you know, who knows, but it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I enjoyed my time there, and I'm prepared for the next time. You know, that's very well said and very true because, uh, you know, the wrestling business is, you know, a big copycat business, and if somebody sees it, then, you know, they kind of pass it off the next time, or, you know, they steal it for themselves. And, you know, you yeah, mentioned you know. John. Yeah, that for sure, you know, copycat business. And you mentioned John Cena for a second, but before that, 
you mentioned uh, your dad was Mike Tyson's sparring partner. What in yes. the world? You know, what in the world is that like? I mean, is that just uh, you know you get knocked out uh, every week? I mean, what's it like? <laughs> uh, you know, training with Mike Tyson. Jeez. Well, my my mother was actually really really a preacher. She's a minister, and my father that was one of my gimmicks I came up with it was very very creative, and that was one of the things they loved about me, but never allowed me to show. And I came up with a lot of different nicknames and a lot of different elements to my character. Each nickname had a story behind it. One of them was Son of the Preacher and the Prize Fighter. And that basically was kind of to help tell the whole story of the character, the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other shoulder character, which I never got to do on WWE, but I did in FCW. Um, and they loved the character because it was a split personality character. It was along the lines of what Randy Orton was doing with Legacy with the uh, – uh, where he would snap and just RKO people out of nowhere, but it was deeper. It was like more religious based. But as far as that, you know, my father he he was tough. He, uh, he also played in the played for the Denver Broncos. But you know, he blew out his knee and then went into boxing, and then ended up sparring with um, Mike Tyson was the last big name person he was a sparring partner for. But he's he's worked with Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, uh, Michael not Michael Moore. Yeah, Michael Moore. He actually. If I remember correctly, I think he was Michael Moore's sparring partner for his fight with George Foreman when George Foreman won the title and became the oldest world heavyweight champion in boxing history. My father was Michael Moore's sparring partner for that. Um, a couple of the guys, I, I, I think Shannon Briggs, I'm not sure. I know Oliver McCall, just a few, a bunch of guys that he's worked with. You know, like Tim Witherspoon was his first one, but like legends. And, and he, he fought Alex Stewart twice, once on Showtime's, um, and once on a yeah, once on pay per view, I believe. I mean, he had a you know, I had a pretty good boxing career. Now that I mean, that's just utterly amazing. Obviously, names Lennox Lewis, Michael Moore, Riddick Bowe, uh, you know, they really stick out. And obviously, you know, Mike Tyson, they really sticks out. You know, is that kind of uh, well? Yeah, I guess it is. I mean, is that where you, you got like uh, you know your propensity for your punching and stuff? You learned that all from your dad? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up boxing. That was, I mean, I was an athlete. I played multiple sports, but I mean, since as long as I can remember, I, I, I was a boxer and I thought amateur. I was going to turn pro, and you know, it, but the focus is more on football as far as college was concerned. But I fought all through middle uh, elementary school, middle school, and then I stopped to focus on football for college. And um, I had five amateur fights, I won them all, and I never got a chance to go pro, but. It was boxing was just something I fell in love with. I always loved it. And, you know, any kind of martial arts as well, and, you know, grappling as well, I, you know, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I always figured that when it was time for me to craft my in-ring persona or my in-ring presence, I had to figure out how can I make myself different. And I figured I would, you know, I, I liked Loki a lot. Loki is a friend of mine. I loved the fact that his strikes were always, his kicks were always, everyone was so, like, in all of his kicks, so I figured I want to make my punches like his kicks and just throw a bunch of different strikes and make those the centerpiece of my, you know, my, my arsenal, so to speak. And other than that, other than that, like suplexes, more like shoot, fighting, wrestling type things, but strikes, you know, just something a little different, you know, and, and then throwing wrestling here and there and, and, you know, very proficient with chain wrestling. People don't know that because I'm not perceived as someone who's a really good technical wrestler, but I actually am, but, you know, just things like that. It's crazy because, you know, you know, you're, you you have that background, you have the boxing background, you know, obviously you can wrestle, but, you know, as 
as you go through FCW, you know, you kind of, you know, you're with Dusty, your pet project, a pet project there. Then they create the NXT show. You know, they've put you guys on TV, but we don't know too much about you except that Carlito is going to be your mentor. How did you feel, that, you know, going into that show with Carlito as your mentor, and how do you feel like you were, would be able to play off of him? Well, I loved it. I was excited about Carlito being my pro. I was very excited. Um, I, I mean, I not I wasn't completely naive. I realized that they hadn't really used him on TV much leading up to that point in the recent history leading up to that point. And, you know, I got it. I understood. But I had such a positive outlook on it that I figured him and I could bounce off each other and just and be like the underdogs. And I knew that with my ability to talk and his ability to talk and his charisma, we could really, really steal some attention. But we never got a chance to do that. And it wasn't really set up that way. So I started doing it on my own. And he ended up leaving the company halfway during the season. And I finished, people didn't really realize, I finished the last half of that season with no pro. So I was kind of doomed from the start. But but you know, I I I made lemonade out of lemons, and and I did this, you know, certain little things that I did on the show to get myself over. Now it's a big, you know, point of contention with that show. They're basically saying how much of it is scripted, and how much of it was basically them, you know, just throwing you out there, you ad lib, and they see what happens. So how much of the show was scripted? And how much of the show, you know, was just you guys kind of ad libbing? Just a typical. I mean, the show was basically designed. They presented it as a reality show, and it really wasn't a reality show. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. The show was designed to come off like Jersey Shores meets Tough Enough, so to speak. And, you know, and they had the things like where, I want to say, uh, if I remember correctly, it was David Otunga and R-Truth. And R-Truth attacked David Otunga, but didn't tell him. But he, he attacked him backstage. And the only people that knew was R-Truth and, you know, production crew. And we're all like, and, and they're working, but, you know, they're, they're fighting. And we're all looking like, and I'm like, what the, do I stop this? What do I do? But it was perfect because we had that reaction and the fans had that reaction. Um, as far as things like that, other than that, other than, like, the matches and things like that, everything else was, was unscripted. I mean, they, they put us in the situations and then basically tried to generate a knee-jerk reaction. Um, things like Carlito walking up, we're all standing in line, at the end of the show with uh, Matt Stryker, and Carlito walks up with the apple, and I'm thinking he's going to spit the apple in my face. I was actually praying that he was, because basically they basically said, just react. Just do whatever it is that you're going to do, and they wanted the biggest and best reaction from us that we could possibly give. And, you know, it was kind of a double-edged sword, but it always is with their company. But he walks up, and I was praying he was going to spit in my face. I'm like, I was going to knock him out. And that would have been a great lead-in for the next episode. They would have had to give me something with him. And... He walks up in his fist apple and eats Slater's face, which random to me, but he did it, and it was led into a match the next week, which I basically, you know, went for creative. I'm like, okay, well, you had the match with Heath Slater, and my pro let me have a match with Heath Slater, you know, which makes sense. Absolutely, and it seemed like some of the show, you know, was definitely, like, like you said, it was kind of like they're just looking for a reaction from you guys. And one of the best yeah. reactions uh, from you that I can remember was almost like a non-reaction where you didn't want to perform most of the tasks. Uh, some of them were absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> was that kind of like your idea? It was almost like a Bad News Brown kind of thing. It was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not being a part of this. Was that kind of like your game plan? You just didn't want to be involved? Or did they tell you not to do that? Oh, no, they gave me nothing. They they gave me absolutely nothing creatively. They gave me no direction. They gave me nothing on the show. And I, I'm just me being frank. 
everything I did, I did on my own, 100%, at risk of being at the risk of getting in trouble. I did everything on my own, and I basically, and it worked because I did it to the to the effect that the creative had to start talking to me, the creative team, and the writers. They had to start talking to me because they had to figure out what I was going to do next. And then it got to a point where they start calling me finally, you know, the week of the show, and asking me, okay, telling me, here's the challenge for the next show. What are you going to do on this next challenge so we can figure out, basically so they can figure out how to confuse me so I didn't have a way to throw the next challenge and get more attention for myself. But I always, you know, I was always able to have a way to get myself over. But, and, you know, things like the keg. And, and I thought ahead, and they never really gave me credit for that, but the keg challenge, I knew that I wasn't going to win the keg challenge. So I figured I could either be second, third, or fourth place. I can be the winner or I can be the biggest loser. And you can win and people will talk about it. But if you're the biggest loser, people will talk about it more depending on how you lose. So I dropped the keg on purpose. And then when I dropped the keg, I threw the biggest biggest fit that I could possibly throw. And then I cut a promo, an impromptu promo uh, that day. I wasn't allowed to have any promos. And I snatched the mic from my striker and just cut a promo without anyone knowing I was going to do it. So I figured, well, this is how you set up the show, then you want us to do this, and this is what we want to do. From that point on, you know, then they started, they didn't believe me that I dropped the cake on purpose until I started throwing all of the challenges from that point on. Then they finally started to believe me that I really was doing this on purpose by design to get myself over, and it was working. I was getting booed. At, like, I was the only heel of the show. I mean, so you got eight guys trying to be a baby face, and only two or three of them are getting any kind of creative, you know, any kind of love from creative somebody has to be smart enough to be try to be the heel, and that was me. Great. I mean, that's just great uh, psychology, I and mean, it's great. And I remember the Matt Stryker thing, uh, which was great, because he, was, quite frankly, was very annoying on that show. <laughs> so, it, you know, <laughs> I love my show. <laughs> what did you think about him, like, in the stuff that he said? He was you know, I guess somebody was feeding him lines in here, and he was purposely trying to agitate you guys? It was part of the show. I love Matt Stryker. Matt Stryker, he helped me. I love Matt Stryker to death. He helped me a lot. He was one of the few people there that actually helped me. Those promos that I would do when I would snatch the mic from him, those were set up between him and I. And oh. I basically, because he was one of the few people. I, I have, I guess, the way for some reason people perceive me or Michael Tarver, quote, unquote, is kind of polarizing. Like they either love Michael Tarver or hate Michael Tarver. There is no in-between. And for some reason people just perceive me that way. And he knew what he got that. He saw that I got it. And he was one of the people that, even behind the scenes, not just fans, like creative, people would look at me and say, why in the world are you not with WWE? Why are you not? Why did they let you go? And then someone else would look at me and say, I don't see anything in you. But, you know, he was one of the people that saw something in me. And, he, you know, so I went to him and said, hey, I'm going to start cutting promos. I'm going to snatch the mic, take 10 seconds, 15 seconds, hand it right back. And he said, just make sure you do it quick. I said, okay. And he, so he helped me. And he was one of the, no one else knew but him and I. That's great, you know, that you guys kind of plan that, and, and obviously very smart of you, you know, to uh, create your own character on the show, because obviously, you know, the other guys on the show really kind of, you know, kind of blended into, um, I wouldn't say bland area, but they didn't really have a character, but then, you know, Michael Cole started in on Daniel Bryan. Was that scripted at all, or is that just Michael Cole doing that to bust Daniel Bryan's balls, and, you know, he goes 0-10, oh, so they, you know, were they trying to, like, knock him down a peg since he was, like, the indie darling? Oh God, no, no, no! That was all by design. That was all by design. That that's that was the sympathy push. Um, David Otunga had a, I had a character. David Otunga had a character. We were really the only two guys that really had a gimmick 
going in. Well, no, Darren Young did too. And um, no, actually, what am I talking about? So did Skip Sheffield. So the right back, right back, Skip Sheffield. He had the most. I'm outside. Sorry, he had the most animated character of all of us. Actually, Skip Sheffield was amazing. You know what? I don't know why I said I'm the only one. Yeah, we all had characters. Actually, the only one that didn't have a character was Daniel Bryan. <laughs> but you know, when now when I think back to it, we all had crazy gimmicks. But oh uh, yeah, Daniel Bryan was the only one. Brian Dennis was the one that didn't have a gimmick. Um, but no, that was all by design. It was you know, and it, it worked. It worked very well. Um, one of the things that I had to do to get myself over to separate myself, you know, other than the promos is T-shirts because when they took my knockout punch and they took my gloves, I was wearing a T-shirt, you know, with the 1.9 on it. Now, I don't know if anyone else has ever done it on WWE before, but as far as I know, I'm the first person to wear, pers- you know, merch on TV that's not WWE-sanctioned merch. Hmm. It's not the only person. Uh, no, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if anyone else got on WWE TV. I mean, I know CM Punk wore his Gracie Jiu-Jitsu stuff and all of that, but I mean, I wore, like, my own T-shirt that I made myself. And the Run NXT T-shirt, now I see people all over the place, indies with their Run, whatever the name, letters of their indie company is, Run IWC, Run whatever. And now I see that all over the place now. Everyone's, you know, that's another thing. But now when you think about it, in every NXT after NXT Season 1, Everybody had their own had their own T-shirts. Everybody came out wearing their own shirts, but I was the only person on NXT season one to do that. First person to do that. Now everybody in the current NXT now has their own merch, has their own T-shirts. And it's funny if you ask any of them where they came from, no one, none of them will probably know. And they'll probably realize that again. That, I mean, it didn't come from me, but I was first person as far as NXT is concerned to actually do that. But that was one of the things I had to do to set myself apart. And it, you know, obviously it caught on, and now everybody in NXT has their own merchandise. Everybody in every season in the original NXT had their own merchandise because I was the first person to do it. Hey, look at that! I remember, I remember, you know, obviously the merch and the shirt and stuff, which is very interesting. But even more interesting was the elimination. I mean, you were basically one and seven at that point. I think Daniel Bryan was zero and ten. Like you guys were like one and two as far as being, you know, like two worst records for God knows what reason. But um, mm-hmm. but what was that elimination about with you guys? Was you know were you supposed to be eliminated that way, or was that kind of like an ad lib throw-in where they're like, oh, you don't want to be here? Oh no, I'm I'm sure that I was. I'm 100% sure that I was supposed to be eliminated first. I but when once by the time that episode came, I realized that they already designed to have me eliminated <laughs> as the first person from the first episode. But. I nothing nothing that I did came from creative. I did everything on my own, even the promo. I knew they were going to eliminate, so I said that. And the promo was kind of a double entendre. And what I mean is, I said when he asked me who should be eliminated right now, I said me. But I knew the last thing people would expect. And this is how I think when I cut my promos. The last I, I like to say the last thing anyone would expect me to say, and then explain it. That's how you get people's attention. The first thing you say make it the last thing they expect to hear. Then you explain it and tie it into the point of the promo, whether it's the person, the match, pay-per-view, TV show, building, date, city, time, whatever. And that's one of the things that Dusty Rose taught me. And when he asked me who do I think should be eliminated, I said me. That's the last thing anybody would expect me to say. Plus, it's ironic because I'm the one throwing all of the challenges, and it would be predictable for me to say, I think so-and-so because... Everyone else, you know, when they asked somebody else, they pointed to somebody else. I think this person should be eliminated. I think that person should be eliminated. I said me. And then 
the look on everybody's face like what? And then I explained it. And the reason why I said me is because I said now I'm gonna I've been unpredictable, now I'm gonna become even more unpredictable and now nobody's gonna see me safe. And my plan was if they didn't eliminate me that night, I was gonna start jumping people. It wasn't gonna be working be the working fashion, but I was gonna just start jumping people out of nowhere. And just start being and start slamming chairs, start doing anything I can to basically doing what we did with next. I was gonna start slamming chairs and throwing stuff and, and, and attacking people and, and just, just out of nowhere and just be completely unpredictable and force them, force myself over. And then they eliminated me. But then, they, you know, when the creative was like, well, kid, you said you should be eliminated. I'm like, okay, you know better, and you know what I meant when I said that. But it's okay. I'll take that. But that was the point to me saying that, because I was basically yeah. warning them that I was going to become even more unpredictable. Yeah, you were definitely unpredictable. Was it unpredictable that Wade Barrett ended up uh, winning? Nope, not at all. I thought, honestly, I figured it was going to be either him or uh, Justin Gabriel. I knew that they were going to keep David Otunga in, in high, you know, in high regard. We all knew that. Actually, we were surprised by it when it first started, but then as the show continued, we, we figured, you know, which, and these are good guys, deserves it. And they all are good guys. Um, but no, I wasn't surprised at all. And, and, and Wade Bear's a great guy. He's a world champion. He should have already been a world champion by now. Oh, yeah, 100% on that, I agree. But let's take it to the night, and that is July 5th, 2010. It was a Monday Night Raw that had a little bit of an edge to it. They brought out Barrett a little bit earlier in the show, but I don't think anybody could ever have predicted what was going to ensue next, and that was the Nexus takeover. All of the cast members of NXT Season 1 together as a group, the group that would go on to dominate a good portion of the summer, and then we'll get into what happened after that. But take us through that night itself, the crowd reaction, the dismantling of the Raw set, and just tearing apart the go-home of a Monday Night Raw. Uh, yeah, sure. That was actually July 7th. Um, July 7th. And, no, June 7th, not July. It was June 7th. It was June 7th, 2010. Um, in South Beach, Miami, one of my favorite places on the planet. That, to me, was probably the best debut ever, I've ever seen. And I'm not saying it because I was a part of it, and I love wrestling. And that was the best debut that I've ever seen, and or one of. And when we went out there, I mean, they've had factions debut before, and people were running and jump people. But when we went out there, and the way that Vince, you know, Vince man set that up, and the way that we structured it, the, the fans were so in shock and in awe because we did it slowly. And I remember standing in the corner where, you know, when the camera caught me, I was just standing there. And I put the, you know, it was, that was actually the mask. The T-mask was a sleeve off of one of my T-shirts. And the mask, not that everybody wears now, but or a lot of people wear But it was a sleeve off one of my T-shirts, and then I made it into a mask. But I remember just standing there, and the woman that was standing next to me looked up at me and screamed. And I remember, I remember laughing under the mask because she couldn't hear me. I'm, you know, I'm in my pose or whatever, and she looked up and saw that I was standing next to her and screamed. And then my cue came, and I jumped the guardrail and stood there and waited, and everybody else jumped the guardrail. When we got in, like, it was like people were, like, in awe. And then once we got in the ring, when, I think when David Otunga punched out the ref, and then I think um, I think it was Kit Sheffield, I want to say Darren Young and Heath Slater, they took out the ring announcers, and they took out, you know, Jerry King and everybody, and they took out the security. When they did that, then they were like, wait a minute, this is different. This is something, this is different. And it was just us and Cena. Like, people have never come in and beat up the ref and taken out security, you know, and, and the cameraman. Like, I think um, Darren Young knocked out the cameraman. 
And then that and that was one of the things that we were like, okay, this way, man, something's something's wrong. And that was the whole that was the the design, that was the feel they wanted the Nexus to have. When we came out, it wasn't just a uh oh, they're about to kick some butt. It was a something's wrong. That was the feel. And we didn't just go out and just jump scene them. We we beat the mess out of them. But, you know, they told us destroy everything. And if you don't, you're fired. We're like, Okay. And it had to be completely a secret. And we had armbands, we couldn't tell anybody and we went out there and ripped up the ring, ripped up everything, broke cameras, broke chairs, ripped up the set. Man, let me tell you, I have never felt such a more deafening silence in my life than I did that night in South Beach. It was so quiet, but it was the, the silence was deafening. Like there were people, there were people crying. There were people with, like when basically when Taker lost at Mania, the same reaction. Like people were in shock, like they couldn't believe what they were watching. And I, you know, I just, I it, it was just amazing. Like it was, it was just I've never felt like that. Other than like when my children were born. And when I debuted, like, it was just a feeling. Like, it was like, wow, like, how in the world do you live life without experiencing something like this? And it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, you literally just took me right back to, you know, the night that that happened. And, of course, the world was a buzz the next day with where is it going? You take out Cena, you know, and just literally put your stamp on your spot, which would be carried through for the next couple of months. But... The following weekend, and I know my co-host and I were in attendance for this, and that was the oh, Nexus invasion of Madison Square Garden, which, again, oh. was your regular <laughs> average house show, a main event of John Cena and, I believe, Sheamus. Sheamus and all yep. of a sudden, the Nexus comes through. Uh, first, it was Barrett, and the crowd was yeah. buzzed just because it was Barrett. And then you guys came through the other side of the arena, and it was deafening and not silence screams and cheers and it's a new york crowd yeah so it's already hot but yeah. take us through that night at madison yeah. square garden that had to have been off the charts first of all being able to wrestle at madison square garden that, that's that was a dream come true in itself just being able to be there but yeah when that, we ran out man that crowd blew up it was just i mean it was like i'm running looking around like Oh my God, this is amazing! This is amazing. I'm looking at the crowd like this is amazing. Like I've never, you know, twenty thousand people yelling and screaming, and we ran in it. You know, we we jumped them, and it was it was just, it was amazing. It was so much fun. Like that was such an exhilarating experience. And we went back to MSG again. Actually, we um we did. It was four of us. It was Bret Hart's last match at at um yeah. MSG, and it was us against the Hart Dynasty and Bret Hart. And that was in the main event. There actually it was myself. I want to say Heath Slater. I think Otunga was with us, I believe. And I want to say Gabriel. I'm not quite sure where the other guys were, but I know Heath Slater was there. And uh, yeah, it was the main event. Got to cut a promo in front of the crowd and everything. Like, it was it was it was amazing. Again, we were in attendance for that one as well, and you were right. It was indeed amazing. It was an absolute. Those are two, like I said, up, except for the Bret Hart, you know, ceremonies, or whatever. The other shows were pedestrian house shows until that Nexus came out, and that was unbelievable. So now we built through the summer. You guys are dominating. You're taking people out left and right. They're building a SummerSlam, which I think everybody and their mother thought the Nexus is going to win, reign supreme. And at the end of the night, John Cena gets the victory. You guys are all eliminated. And I think the stick of dynamite basically was about to fizzle out. Were you guys just completely yeah. disappointed with that, or was that the direction from the start? We didn't know what the direction was. And honestly, I don't think they did either. And 
uh, we all, obviously we all had an, our own experience, and we were smart enough to know that it really makes the most sense for us to win because it doesn't hurt them. It actually helps them if we win and continue because then they can keep building. And, and honestly, like the first time, that was the first time in a long time that Cena had really had any real sympathy because people were kind of over him. And he's always going to be over. You know, he's John Cena. But that was the first time in a long time he'd had real sympathy, you know, and he had sympathy. And he, and he you know, he did his thing. John Cena's great. He's amazing. And to me, it's like I think they got greedy. And, you know, us losing that, just we, we should have continued that too. And that, to me, that storyline should have ended at WrestleMania. They should have, we should have won. We should have grown stronger, added, you know, Mason Ryan, added, which, you know, added uh, uh, Bray Wyatt, at, you know, who was Husky Harris at the time, added, you know, Joe Henning, you know, who was Axel, you know, uh, who was uh, Curtis Axel, you know, or maybe even add CM Punk, you know, and just make it just a super, and make it even bigger, you know, there's so much more. They could have, they could have got twice more out than what we actually ended up getting and and just build it, bring in other names, bring in the whole NWO DX thing they did, you know, they, and there's so many things they could have done with that you know, to make that explode at WrestleMania and go from there, you know, and then now you got eight guys made, ten guys made, your whole, you know, main of the roster is now replenished, you know, and instead, what happened that? It's just, it's, it's probably the biggest question mark, I think. Any, you know, wrestling fans are very cynical and they're always looking to hate on something, but I think they were kind of, of giving it on a silver platter where, everybody was into that storyline. And like you said, it was the first time that a guy who oh, yeah. was completely vilified by the audience was getting cheered, but they loaded up that team with Jericho and Edge and Bret Hart was even in the match. And you yeah. got lost and it really sucked. I mean, as a fan, it really sucked. I mean, there's, there's no other way you could say it, but uh, not soon after that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the John Cena storyline will continue, but I, I think around that time is when you actually hurt your groin, correct? I did. I pulled my groin. That was the first. That was the start of the injuries. I pulled my groin. Yes. So when you hurt your groin, now was there any uh, talk of you like kind of trying to stay around the TV or like what? What was the the process with you getting hurt and then getting taken? You were essentially quote fired uh, by Wade Barrett and oh. then you know they continued on. But what was so? How did that go with uh, with that injury? Did you suffer that during a match? <laughs> I did actually. I, I pulled my groin in Toronto on a house show in Toronto, actually. And, um, and they, I mean, they didn't really have any creative direction for me personally. I mean, they never really did. Um, not until I resurfaced back on TV, but they never really had any creative direction for me. And I continued to work and travel, and, you know, and that led to the groin pool. After the groin pool was the infamous forearm fracturing with the whole John Cena chair incident. Um, where he accidentally fractured my arm. He didn't do it on purpose. He was just taking liberties. But I know, you know, when I first tweeted about it four or five years ago, uh, the way I worded it, it came across that I said he did it on purpose, and I didn't mean for it to come across that way. But since then, I've done countless interviews and, you know, said that, cleared it up. So, no, he didn't try to hurt me. He just, he just wasn't careful. But from there, you know, the, the fracturing of my forearm, and then right after that, the groin pull was in my right leg, in my right quad, then I had a bone bruise in my left knee. So I couldn't bend my left knee. I couldn't raise my right knee. Then I ended up with uh injury in my lower back and my right calf was torn after my last match with with uh Cena with the tag match with with Mark Henry and Evan Bourne and I still was traveling, still working. Sent back up to F C W and was down there training and, and wrestling and doing everything. Never took a day off. 
Wow, that's uh, that's a testament to your uh, your recovery right there that you did battle through all of those injuries and still never take a day off. That's uh, that's quite a testament to your dedication. But you know, and, and even though you weren't a part of the end of it, I mean that the nexus, you know, just ended. You know, like uh, like like I said before, like a fizzle off a stick of dynamite. That it just it, it had to go away by the end of it, which was so unfortunate, just because they killed. I mean, they killed yeah. it. They they made it and they killed yeah. it. Was that disappointing yeah. to see uh, from afar? It was. It was because, and then when they came up with the core, that was disappointing. I'm like, come on, you. Uh, it's just and once once I saw the core, like no no against those, you know, nothing against those guys. I love those guys, but. When I saw that, I was like, "Come on, guys! Like that's you can you you can do so much more with these guys. They have so much talent. You can do so much more with them. Like I just the core, really, you know. But I mean, they, it was all of those guys are great. They're all great, you know. Barrett and, and Tunga, Ezekiel Jackson, you know, Slater, all of those guys, you know, they're all great. And I, you know, it, it you know it hurt a little bit because it was something we put so much into, but. I was happy to see what they did with the shield. I was very happy about that. I, I was very happy to see how well the shield worked. I thought it was weird that three guys half our, our size were basically beating up guys the same way we were, and it was eight of us, and we we're twice their size. But other than that, I was very happy with how, you know, the shield turned out and how, you know, they did it right because they wanted to do it right. You know, it, it's, you know, they'll tell you that something, people say they did it right or they did whatever right or they pushed the guy right, and, well, they only, that happens when they push someone they want to push. That's, I mean, they can do whatever they want. WWE, they can make you look however they want you to look, no matter how good you actually are or not. And there's plenty of examples of that. But they wanted the shield to work, and it worked. They wanted us to work, and it worked. And then they wanted us to not work, and we failed, or we fell apart. Well, you know, it wasn't because of anything we were doing. We were doing what we were told. But... You know, again, it was. I was very happy to see how the shield worked out because I was in developmental with those guys. You know, you know, those guys are friends. You know, so very, very happy for them. Yeah, you almost think they got it right. You know, what they didn't do with the Nexus, they did with the shield. But the guy who's making that decision, oh is yeah, Vince McMahon himself. And what was Vince's take on the Nexus uh, from what you could see, or or what was relayed to you just based off of you know, obviously you guys took out Vince McMahon at one point, so you got even to get hands on the chairman. We did, yeah. He was very hands-on with us, actually, the entire time. Him and John Cena, which people don't really, a lot of people know now, but John Cena was kind of in charge of that project, and I think that was one of the differences and why S.H.I.E.L.D. worked so well, because John Cena had nothing to do with the S.H.I.E.L.D. And I'm not blaming John Cena for anything, because I'm fortunate that I got to work with John Cena and very appreciative that I got to work with John Cena. But that was one of the differences. And this man was very, very hands-on with us, and He's very particular with how he wanted us to come across with every attack, with every episode. And, and there's a lot of things that, you know, a lot of double-edged swords we had to face. You know, there were a couple of times where we hurt people. And we didn't mean to, not, you know, not all of us, but, you know, we, we attacked Ricky the Jackson Steamboat. He was legitimately hurt from that. And, I, you know, he's a friend of mine. Like, I love him to death. I'm very close to him. And that hurt, you know, that he got hurt from that. We didn't realize that we had hurt him, but maybe they told us to go so hard and be so aggressive, you know, and, we're, you know, green guys from developmental, not green meaning we did not work, we're just green to the main stage and we're trying to do what we're told and you know it just it was it was a very crazy situation. Trying to do what you're told and you're rubbing the you know, rubbing the locker room the wrong way. You know, and then, then it's easier to sort us out and see who they don't want. And I was the first one to go. And it wasn't for no reason. But it was fun though. But I do have to get back in. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, just based off everything you said, I mean, you should be. I mean, you should be straight right back through the doors and uh, really making an impact. Now, before we get to the release, uh, just the, the weird thing was is your reemergence uh, in the backstage capacity. Uh, you were just kind of there. I mean, was, <laughs> was that yeah. leading to um Again, that was basically on the strength of my promos and what I was doing backstage. And a lot of people don't know. I've said in some interviews, uh, Mr. McMahon himself would do a promo class for the main roster every Monday and Tuesday morning. And I would go to the promo class. He would call people up to the front of the class, like the entire roster, the camera crew would be recording. They document everything there. And basically, you know, he would teach us how to cut different kinds of promos. People don't realize there's different kinds of promos for different situations. People don't even realize that. I see a lot of guys in the Indies imitating 80s promos and, you know, thinking they're doing something, which is cool and all, but, you know, they're imitating Flair and, you know, imitating the Horsemen. And, but, okay, all right, well, be creative. You know, you'll never be them. Don't imitate them. So he would teach us how to be ourselves and how to, you know, channel different emotions. And I would notice I would always get overlooked, and they, you know, with my pride. You know, I was a promo guy in, in FCW, and, and in my opinion, I was one of the best promo guys in the company. And in the business, to be honest with you. And I, I'm, I'm today, I feel like the exact same way. I don't really know it. I personally believe I'm one of the best in this business. And when I say one of the best, I mean top five. Um, and I would get up and interrupt this man during criminal class, and I'd tell him to give me a word, a random word, and he would. And I would and I would cut a promo in front of the entire roster and nail it every time, get standing ovations every time. And then Triple H saw that and they decided to try to make me a manager, and that was what I was originally going to be in 2008. Um, I almost debuted in 2008 when I first got signed. I was on the road in like two months, but I people don't know that as well. But so they had me, re, you know, I had to put on a suit and I had to cut different promos, and they were, you know, giving me different ideas of who they wanted me to manage. And I thought it was weird that here I am going to be more big, I'm going to be bigger and more intimidating looking than the people I'm managing. But whatever, I'll make it work. And, you know, this man would actually come and spend two or three hours instead of going to rehearsal. He would spend two hours with me in the pre-tape room, just me and him. And they had Armando Estrada there as well, and they were going to bring him back. It would just be the three of us, and it would just be us for two hours working on promos. And I was like, wow, for him to do that was already, like, unprecedented, you know. And, and I started popping up backstage, and they were basically wanting to be confusing. And, you know, they wanted people, you know, trying to figure out why in the world am I popping up, obviously, to kind of be different from the way they saw me the last time with the Nexus. And it just, I don't know, they started and then stopped. <laughs> but what ended up happening is the gimmick that basically they were trying to, wanted me to do what is what ended up being Abraham Washington's gimmick with the primetime players, which he was honestly better suited for it anyway. But basically what they wanted me to do was what, what Abraham Washington ended up becoming with the primetime players, like a sports agent type, you know, character. And um, they would have, and it was Dusty's idea, like he would, because I, he was the idea we were practicing at FCW, and, you know, he, I'd do the promos, and he said, why don't you walk up to him and hand him a cell phone? You know, tell him, you know, you can do, you can help them or whatever, hand him a cell phone and walk away. And so that's why I was always on my cell phone. I was always in the back in the suit on my cell phone. And once I finally was able to start talking, I was going to start approaching guys and hand him a cell phone and walk away. And that was going to be, you know, the gimmick. And just and, you know, it didn't stop. <laughs> and then I got released. Very 
to, as we start to wind it down here, just two questions before yeah. we get into your plugs and, you know, just let you go real quick. But obviously they release you, you know, you end up kind of working for the NWA. Obviously you spent some time with New Japan Pro Wrestling, which is just awesome. Now, do you have a favorite you. match or matches that you've had in your career? I do. I do. Um, definitely. Um, it wasn't one of my best matches, but the, my first match with New Japan, that was it was just amazing being there with uh, with Tenzan, and I love Tenzan to death. And but that's one of my favorite matches of all time because just because of where it was, and you know, against all odds, being in Japan, um, the the debut, my debut with NXT with Carlito and Heath Slater and Christian, you know, it was a pretty decent match. As far as um, you know, more matches that have a little more content to it. Um, every match that I had with Chris Logan. And uh, or Chris Logan, Brian Cage is or Brian Cage is his name. He's with Lucha Underground now. But all the matches I had with him at FCW uh, were amazing. I love. He's one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. Um, recently, uh, I, well, I had a couple matches with uh, TCW, which isn't around anymore, with uh, Titan, seven foot guy, and him and I had a very nice story at the end of 2013 with TCW for their TV program. And recently, I've had a really good story going with a young guy named um, Rhett Giddens for FIP, and those have been really good matches. And it's just, you know, it's funny to to put in a very storyline-oriented, psychology-oriented match on a show like an FIP or Evolve, you know, where there's not really they're not really storyline psychology-oriented. It's more, you know, acrobatics and things like that and athletics, which is cool, you know. So, and I'm doing something completely different with promos and stories from fans that are loving it. You know, this is the guy who's been working for two years, and they're looking at him like, wow, your, your psychology is so great. And I'm like, well, you know, he's good. He listens well. And But it's been a lot of fun. It's been a whole lot of fun. I've been able to kind of reintroduce my character and my persona through that as well. You know, you know, limited amount of people get to see it. But other than that, you know, I just kind of basically just, I still watch wrestling. But other than that, those are really the matches that stand out. And the one final big question for you, it's, it kind of ties in almost too perfectly to what you mentioned before, being a big GDP fan, but we kind of had him on, and it's the old uh, Diamond Dallas Page question, you know, he kind of said to us, it was, where do you see yourself in five years? Are you still going to be, you know, involved in the wrestling business uh, part-time, or where do you see yourself? That's a good question. Um, as far as wrestling, I don't know. Um, my focus right now is, is on music and, and powerlifting. Um I've recently kind of gotten back into full-time into my music career, if you will. I released an album in August of this year. I'll be releasing another album in December of this year. And, um, and internationally, you know, iTunes, all of that. And um, But I'm still wrestling. I mean, I still, you know, travel. I have some things coming up to the top of the year. And, you know, and there's there's some, there's some things. You'll be seeing me again soon. But, you know, other than that, I don't know. I mean, I don't plan on stopping until I know that there's absolutely no way that I can work again or walk again. <laughs> One of the two has to, have, has to happen pretty much. And, you know, I just, I, I believe in myself. I, I know what I'm capable of. I don't care if I ever become a world champion, but I know that once they hand me the mic, there's, 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 I can get over with any company. I mean, it's just, put me in the ring. I can work with anybody. It's just, I, I know that. And, I'm just going to keep pushing until I get that chance to show it. 
Well, we thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. It's been a ton of fun. We learned a lot, and, you know, all the best to you. But please tell the fans and the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling just where they can find everything about Tyrone Evans, a.k.a. Michael Tarver. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, at Tyrone Evans B20. Uh, I have a Facebook fan page. It is Tyrone Evans slash Michael Tarver. Um, you can find my music on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Spotify, uh, uh, what else, Amazon Music, um, SoundCloud, Reverb Nation, um, search B2.0 backslash 2.0 sound. My first uh, album is called God Help Us. It's out right now on iTunes. Uh, the new album will be called The Sheep and Wolves Clothing, and that will be released in December of this year. And it will be on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, everything. It will be everywhere. But, you know, and that's that my YouTube page, uh, Tyler Nevis Jr. If you only knew who had become after the storm, you wouldn't have trusted me. If you only knew who had become after the storm, you wouldn't have trusted me. I ain't never gonna shot, uh-huh. I ain't never gonna quit, uh-huh. I ain't never gon' give a fuck cause I live up what I spit uh-huh. I, I know Jesus is with me uh-huh. I, I know he is my God uh-huh. I, I don't have to be thuggin' uh-huh. I, I don't have to be hard uh-huh. Let's go. I was voted most likely to have a psychiatric evaluation Let's start the process of elimination Cause I've been in a situation I feel like I've been a patient but really just waiting for revelations uh-huh. Cause I'm too determined to be held back If you can't tell uh-huh. God is number one I'm cool with number two just like Manziel Johnny Another century, you don't know what it meant to be to uphold a position where you belong in the ministry. Gonna roll with the mission. He is approaching and giving you something more than your industry can control. Uh-huh. You, you, you don't know what you get to me, you don't know what you're missing. You will assume the position, and then the people will listen. Only by grace of forgiveness, there's so much more than the rest of the ring. Yes, it can be blessing your soul. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Rihanna, my umbrella is ready to make it into the storm. You listening to a regular broken man in his form who's ready to take on a hurricane and ready to swarm. Uh-huh. Hold me back. These haters can't hold me back. Jesus died on the cross, he rose in three days and he came right back. Jesus falls to the water, you won't withstand the storm. The warrior whispers back. Falling invisible gats, you always pulling out of your raps. The Holy Spirit make you fall and collapse. If you really want to take a dare, you will have to make it there. You better get ready, the enemy will not make it fair. Cause he came with the noise to kill, steal, rape, pillage, and destroy. Jesus came, you are free. His name is the feed you gain, is the peace and joy. Through the grace of God, you can break these odds when they say it's all for your place to drop. You can face these problems and make it out of a place that's hard. And I feel a barbaric, I'm a Texas tornado like Harry Bond, Eric, and my faith is real. Even Katrina couldn't stop me up like the Orleans when the saints hit the field. Brainstorming. Get through the night to the day morning. Make it through the blizzard, I don't want to revisit the pain, but when you make it to the stage, go in.
Sometimes I don't want to fight. Wake up in the night looking for the light. Looking for the right reason for the fight. Maybe if I try giving them a pride, I'll be able to see my destiny in the Christ. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Rihanna. My umbrella is ready to make it into the storm. You listening to a regular broken man in this form? Who's ready to take over a hurricane and ready to swarm? Uh-huh. Hold me back. These haters can't hold me back. Jesus died on the cross. He rose in three days and he came right back. Shameless falls to the world. You won't withstand the storm. The warrior whispers back. Saturday, December 12th, Sports Possessions at the Liberty Center in Westchester, Ohio, brings to you former WWE superstar Kevin Thorne, also known as Mordecai. Come meet the Pale Rider and become a member of the Bite Club just in time for the holidays. That's Saturday, December 12th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, comes to Sports Possessions at the brand new Liberty Center in Westchester, Ohio. Visit sportspossessions.com for more information or call 513-759-2600. Kevin Thorne is back, and it's time for you to join the Bike Club. 